Thank you for joining us. You're listening to the sermon ministry of the United Advent Christian Church in Wilmington, North Carolina, where we strive to love God with all that is in us, love our neighbor as ourselves, and make disciples of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. I hope you're blessed by this week's message. Please feel free to reach out to us if we can help you or serve you in any way. Thanks again. Our scripture is going to be Jeremiah chapter 2. It's about to get loud. (laughs) Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. I'd encourage you to uh, turn there with me. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. This is the word of the Lord. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. I want to I want to talk to you in our time together this morning about idols. This is usually a sermon uh, that's not easy to hear, but this is a sermon that if we if we will do some soul searching this morning, if we'll do some digging in, in God's word, if we'll do some careful thought and observation of our lives, this is a message when applied that, that can bring Tremendous impact in our spiritual lives. So uh, in my first pastorate, there was there was a man that uh, um, we would just go toe to toe. We'd argue about scripture, but in a loving way. I had the utmost of respect for him and I really felt like he was respectful to me. But almost every Wednesday night after our Bible study, he'd meet me at the back door and he'd have two or three points that. He thought I needed to rethink, you know, and uh, and so uh, I, I enjoyed that banter. I enjoyed that back and forth. One one uh, one particular week I was talking about this subject matter. I was talking about idols and he was adamant that idols were a primitive thing and that there were no idols. We don't we, idolatry or idols is not a problem in our modern culture. I don't know where he got that idea from. Maybe somebody taught him that along the way. But I want you to think about the storyline of Scripture for just a moment this morning as we begin. In the Garden of Eden, God creates this perfect earthly paradise, right? He sets Adam and Eve in the garden. He sets Adam, creates Eve out of Adam. And, and then he, he gives them dominion over creation. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Shepherd, steward, creation. And then God gives them one directive, right? What's the directive? Don't eat of the, ne- uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says to them emphatically, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what is, 
What is the first act of cosmic warfare that we see in Scripture? We see a, a serpent, this, this creature that slithers along, and, and, and he slithers right up next to Eve, and he says, did God really say? So the question behind the question is, can God be trusted? Is, is God really who he says he is? Will God do what he really says he will do? And I, if you think about your life, if I think about my spiritual walk, my spiritual life, this is a debate that is going on in my head and my heart each and every day. Is God who he says he is? Can I trust that he will do what he says he will do? Because you begin to realize that behind every sin is the sin of idolatry. Behind every sin is, is a discontent, is a disbelief that God is who he says he is and who he says and, and, and that he will do what he says he will do. And, and if you go all the way through the, the pages of scripture, it's not like this theme of idolatry is, is active. This thread is active throughout the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden you get to the New Testament and it stops. Right before the book of Revelation, you have... Um, you know, you have the three Johns and then Jude and Revelation. In 1 John 5, 21, John says to the church, Dear children, keep yourselves free from idols. And he doesn't really talk about idols through those five chapters in 1 John explicitly. But he talks about sinful attitudes and actions of the heart. And he wraps it up by saying, this is idolatry. Keep yourself from it. So I think this is a timely message. And I want to, uh, he's no longer living, but I would take that man to task uh, that, that argued with me all those years ago. I think idols are a relevant conversation for us today. If you sin... And if you dig deep enough under that sin, there's a discontent and there's a disbelief that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. So let's look at it. We pick up in, in Jeremiah 2. And uh, now we think about Jeremiah. Uh, he's one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. He's, he's ministering to Israel. Uh, as they're, as they're on the brink of being expelled from the promised land and, and, and being carried off into captivity. And uh, God, God sends him as one of those last warning signs to say, repent. Or I will do what I said I do. <laughs> because I am who I said I am. Right? And, and so Jeremiah uh, ministers to the nation of Israel, to Judah, more clearly, and he's warning them of their impending judgment, their exile, and their captivity. This is a time in Israel's history that's full of tremendous idolatry. We, we think, you know, there was the presence of idolatry in the wilderness. After all, there was a, a golden calf, right? And, and, then, and then God allows Israel to go into the promised land through the conquest of Canaan. After the exodus. And God warns Israel. He gives them the law again in the book of Deuteronomy. He warns them. He says, you're going to go into this promised land. And it's going to be a, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
But consequently, it's going to be a land flowing with idols as well. And God says, don't take those idols. He says, I want you to destroy those idols. Do not take the gods of the Canaanites and all the other ites that, that dwelled the land. And he says, I want, you to, I want you to keep yourself free from those things. I want you to keep yourself pure. And, and we'd love to, I would love to stand up here and tell you today that, that Israel did just that and, and everything was happily ever after. But um, we, know that, we know that's not the case, don't we? And so what we, we see unfolding in, in this time of prosperity in Israel's life, physical prosperity, is that in a way, it was like they threw off the chains and, and they pursued um, all the gods of the, of the nations around them. I came across a, a quote by Tim Keller years ago in, in reading a book, and I'd highly recommend it, called Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. He, uh, he mentions John Calvin, who says man's nature, so to speak, is a, perfect, a perpetual factory of idols. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And then Keller goes on to explain how idolatry affects the human heart. He says most people know you can make a God out of money. Most know that you can make a God out of sex. However, anything in life can serve as an idol, a God alternative, a counterfeit God. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hope. So what Keller is saying here is this is a particular temptation for those who are living in a land of abundance. Do you notice that? Because the, the greater the things that surround us. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. And that's why Jesus says, particularly about money, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not that worldly wealth and holiness are mutually exclusive. After all, the scripture warns us that not that, that money is the root of, of all evil, but what, is this, what does the Bible say? The, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is just a tool. There's a lot of tools around us in life. And, and the more affluent our society, the more access to those tools that we have. Most of you don't think of yourself as wealthy. I don't think of myself as wealthy. Most of us... No matter where we are on the socioeconomic spectrum, we go, well, I'm just getting by, right? But if you have a roof over your head, if you have two cars in the, in the driveway, you, you probably have more wealth than about 80% of the world's population. You've never been told you were in the upper echelon before, but I'm telling you today. You're in the 80 percentile. So what did the spies call the promised land? The land flowing with milk and honey. And so as a people who are living in a land flowing with milk and honey, I think we should pay careful attention to God's word. First thing I want us to see is that everyone 
Every one of us is a worshiper. Did you know that you can go 30 to 40 days without food? I've never tried it, but I've been told it's the truth. But the experts will tell you, you can only last about three days without water. Think about that. It's a necessity of life. I remember we were taking a tour of the Holy Lands when we were uh, big students. And, and our guide would say this often as we wandered through the desert. He'd say, water is life. In an ancient, uh, arid, Middle Eastern Desert climate, water is life. Think about that. No water, no life. And so the Israelites had to resort to all kinds of means to collect water. And one of the things that they did is they would dig these deep pits in the ground. And they would put those pits at a place uh, where, where water would naturally funnel through the contours of the land and they would dig these deep pits, and these pits would hold water. It was called a cistern. At best, a cistern was full of stanky, stagnant water. Have you ever moved an old tire in your backyard? Maybe you're loading up the trash to take it to the dump. And if you've ever moved an old tire and some of that water uh, splashes on your leg, you'll stink for the rest of the day. But that, that was at best, and, and at worst, what, what Jeremiah says is, is that they would dig these, these wells or these cisterns, and they would, they would develop these fissures and these cracks, and, and all the water would leak out. At best, stanky water. At worst, no water. You go to the cistern in your moment of need, you drop the bucket, and you don't hear splash, you hear clunk. And Jeremiah uses this as a really great analogy for the human heart because he says the human tendency is to forsake the fountain of true and living water. What, what will a real estate agent tell you today? Location, location, location. If you had a plot of land in, in, in the ancient times and you had a fountain or if you had a, a spring on your property, you were a wealthy man. But Jeremiah says, my people have forsaken the fount of of true and living water, and they've dug cisterns with their own hands. So I want to give you a test to determine whether you're a worshiper, okay? So I want you to hold up two fingers, just like this, okay? There's a little spot right here on your neck, kind of a soft, fleshy spot. Just put those fingers right there. Hopefully you feel something. If you don't have a pulse, raise your hand and uh, somebody will grab those defibrillators in the, in the back. But if you have a pulse, the Bible says you're a worshiper. So the aim of, of my message this morning is not to convince you that you need to become a worshiper. I, the aim of my message is to warn you that you might be worshiping the wrong things. Notice that God doesn't say that his people have stopped thirsting, right? That's not what Jer- Jeremiah says. He hasn't, he hasn't said they stopped thirsting, but rather he says they've turned from their own efforts at quenching their thirst. They've, they've turned away from God. They've turned to their own efforts. He says fountains, uh, they've forsaken fountains and they've dug cisterns with their own hands, cisterns that can hold no water. 
So the challenge for you and I this morning is not to become a worshiper. The challenge that is presented to us from Jeremiah is that we need to loosen that white knuckle grip that we have on the idols of our lives and to latch on to a life-changing and life-altering, life-giving connection with Jesus Christ. Listen to what Harold Best says in his book, Unceasing Worship. He says, we begin with one fundamental fact about worship. At this very moment, and for as long as the world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. Everyone is being shaped thereby and is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or of evil. No one is exempt and no one can wish to be. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers. So the, the, the question that we're presented with this morning is not the question of, do I worship? The question is, what do I worship? Are you seeing that? And, and we already covered this. You know, behind every sin is the subtle suggestion by the enemy that there's something that we can latch on to in this world that is sweeter, more beautiful, more precious than Christ. And that's a lie. That's a lie, right? Nothing. I love the, the chorus in that song that we opened up with this, this morning. Boy, it ministered to me this week. At a, you know, just at, at, a, at a low point this week, you know, remember what I said last week? What stirs your affections? I was singing that song. I was all alone. Nobody was around. I was singing it at the top of my lungs. There's nothing better than you, Jesus. Because at that moment, my heart needed to not only hear that. My heart needed to believe it. Not just possess a knowledge of something, but, but actually my, my heart needed some reorientation, some twisting, some, some ringing out. In, uh, in, the, in the book Counterfeit Gods, there, there's a couple helpful thoughts that I want to bring you. And, and I'd like to send these out this week, so don't, don't go crazy uh, taking notes on this one section. But I think this would be really helpful for all of us. Um, in, in the book, he draws a distinction between source idols and surface idols, okay? Source idols and surface idols. And we're going to start with surface idols. What are some surface idols in our culture? Image. Our culture really reinforces the idol of image. What about helping? I have meaning if people need me. Sound familiar? What about dependence? I have meaning if there's someone there to keep me safe. And then some people are wired exactly the opposite. Independence. I have meaning if I'm free from obligations and responsibilities. What about work? Work can be an idol, right? I have meaning by my ability to get things done. Or materialism. Sometimes work is just serving materialism. I have meaning... If I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, nice possessions. This is a warning. Religion can be an idol. 
You could show up here every Sunday, keep all the rules, but if you do so for the wrong motivation, for the wrong reason, then religion could be your idol. I have meaning if I'm keeping my religion's moral codes. Who were Jesus' harshest words reserved for? The scribes and the Pharisees. He said, these people honor me with, my, with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then there are, then you, then you got the guy down at the beach with his surfboard. I have meaning if I'm free from organized religion and self-made morality, right? The community that we just left, this was a big one. Inner ring. I have meaning if I'm part of an exclusive or particular group. A lady asked me where I was from one day, and I've told you this story, and I I said, where do you think I'm from? And she said, not from around here. That's all she needed to know. It was a yes, no, you know, it didn't matter where you're from. As long as it's not here, it doesn't matter. If we're not careful, that inner ring, we we can begin to, to go to that spring to satisfy us. Family. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, that, that is an area that I'm constantly evaluating in my life. I love my wife. I love my children. But I don't ever want them to be more precious to me than Christ. Relationships. I have meaning of a certain person is in love with me. And then we've all met that person who has embraced suffering as their idol. I have meaning only when I'm hurting Or having a problem. And right when I just said that, you thought of somebody. There's somebody in your life, they always have a problem. They actually feel like that that brings them nobility, that makes them worthy of love. And then here, it's coming. You ready for it? Ideology. I have meaning if my views or my party's views have influence or power. That's going to be front and center in the next couple months. I'm not saying that politics is unimportant, but we got to ask ourselves, do the test every day. Don't let it become an idol. But what I love is if you dig deeper, you begin to get even more understanding of what's going on in the human heart. So not only do you have surface idols, but underneath them at the root level, you have source idols. And very often, these are the real things that are driving us. There's comfort idolatry. I will have meaning if I have, and we're going to use money as an example, okay? I will have meaning if I have a certain amount of money in the bank. You see, the money is providing the deeper need, and that's comfort. There's approval idolatry. I know other people will respect me if I have nice things, and so money is just a means to an end. What is money employed for? To dress up my life. Put the window dressing out there so people will go, boy, look at, look at what you've done. I'm going to be honest. There was, there was a time in my life where as I was buying the, the only new car I've ever bought. And I love that smell. and miss it dearly. <laughs> but at that moment, I was thinking... What will other people think of me if I'm driving this nice car? And if you're ever tempted to get a new car to impress me, I'm just going to feel sorry for you. Because you're the one that has to pay the payments for 
60, 80 months, whatever. So there's approval idolatry. Then there's control idolatry. For some people, the accumulation of wealth is to insulate themselves from problems, right? If I have wealth, I can be in control of my life. And I won't get rattled. And so they keep enough money around them to insulate them from the problems of life. Don and I have spent quite a bit of time up at the UNC Cancer Center. And I'm going to tell you something. A keen observation. There's very wealthy people there and there's very poor people there. Control is an illusion. And we've, we've found out firsthand that your life can be completely flipped upside down at a moment's notice. That's a fool's errand, right? And then there are some that really they're not after money, they're after power. I have meaning in life if I have influence. So you begin to see what's driving our behavior. And, and I would just challenge you, as you think about idols... As we're talking about this and you're, you're wrestling with this subject matter and you're thinking, uh, hopefully, as even during the message or as you go home today, sometime this evening or sometime throughout the week during your devotional time, wrestle with the idea, what idols are there in my life? And then I want to challenge you to dig deeper. Am I using that thing to gain control? Am I using that thing to gain the approval of others? Am I using that thing to gain comfort? Am I using that thing or that person to gain power. Jeremiah says, if you dig that cistern, he just wants to prepare you. It's going to let you down in the end. He says there's two appalling decisions. My people, God's people have forsaken the fountain of true and living water and, and they have dug for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. I want to tell you, I I don't want to debate this. Uh, God hardwired us as human beings to be worshipful creatures. St. Augustine said there's a restlessness in the human heart that can only find rest in Christ. But the, the appalling decision, Jeremiah says, is when people turn away from God and start worshiping created things. And you, you'll see the same vein of thought in Romans chapter 1. Paul is appalled. Likewise, he says, people have exchanged the glory of God for a lie. The truth of God for a lie. The glory of God for created things. Do you see why Jeremiah uses this analogy? Because the things of this world, we go to them to find satisfaction, but it never lasts. It never lasts. High school friends, how many of them are you keeping up with a few years later? And you'll bend over backwards to please them, to gain their approval. And where are they now, right? Or, uh, you know, a young lady thinks, man, if I just can get Prince Charming into my life, only to find out that he leaves you at home the night of the ball. Or worse yet, he marries you. And then you realize he's no knight in shining armor. I know y'all are amen and internally. I, I can feel it. I can feel it. 
But, you know, our, our society, there are things like uh, pornography, drugs. They only serve as a gateway to harsher use of the same. Alcohol leads to harder drink or greater quantities in order to deliver the same buzz. Because what we find is that idols promise the world, but they never deliver. They go down sweet, but they sour in your stomach. And I want to stand before you as as somebody that has tasted of the things of this world. And I, I, I think we could all agree they don't satisfy. But I will tell you, I have tasted of Christ. And I savor him. Because he is the only, the, the only force in my life. He's the only influence in my life. He's the only thing in my heart that has ever left me completely satisfied. And I want you to know that God of the universe has done everything to pursue a relationship with you. And, and it, it is a tragedy to turn away from him to pursue lesser pleasures like we, we looked at last week. Ultimately, the invitation of Scripture is not to abandon our desires, but to follow our desires to their greatest fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we've got to be warned from Scripture. Donna, could I have you um, start working on that card? Bring it up this way. We've got, um, we'll just bring it up here at least. We've got to be warned from Scripture that even good things... If we turn them into ultimate things, if we place them at the center of our lives, they'll let us down every time. Often they'll break our hearts. If we idolize other people or if we idolize things, not only will they break our hearts, but we often break them. So I'm going to do a little object lesson just for a moment or two here. And this represents your heart. Right. And then you go through your your life and and uh, you make the mistake, you make the mistake of putting the things of this world. Nothing could be more earthly than earth right here. So we got some dirty, dirty water. Okay, we stain our hearts with sin. If you're like me, I spent. Probably longer than I care to admit in my life. Trying to pick the unworthy parts of my life out. Trying to pick out the things that don't glorify Christ. And if you're also like me, I'm really good at dumping more in there. Right? So what are we to do? What are we to do? Years ago, I came across, uh, I, I came across a, a sermon from a guy that lived 200 years ago, a guy named Thomas Chalmers. And uh, he preached on what was called the expulsive power of a new affection. And what he said is, it's futile to try to, try to pull the unworthy parts of our heart, the sinful parts of our heart out. Because one thing that we learn in science, and this guy was a scientist as well. He says, nature abhors a vacuum, right? And so when we pull those elements out of our, our hearts and out of our lives, something else is going to fill the void. 
So what I want to tell you, the only thing that will really, I mean, if you want to conquer sin in your life, it's not by pulling sin out of your life, but it's by, it's by filling your life with something greater, right? And this is going to represent Jesus in our object lesson, and hopefully I don't make a mess here. But I want to, I want to show you what happens when we make it our effort to put as much Jesus in our hearts and in our lives as we can. And just like Paul said, not that I've arrived or I've attained these things, you know, because it's not a once and for all pouring. It's, it's a constant pouring of Christ into my life. And the problem is you and I go through life and we try to will ourselves into victory with Christ. We try to will ourselves into the kingdom. And, and, you know, very often the Bible represents a, a list of, of do's and don'ts for us. And we think, man, if I could just finally conquer this. If I could maybe spend three or four days and do all the do's and don't do any of the don'ts. Maybe, maybe I'll have arrived. Maybe I'll have attained something. But I want to tell you that the do's and the don'ts of the Bible, they're, they're there to serve a higher purpose. And it's the radical reorientation of our heart. That what we need is more of Jesus. In fact, this is a whole other sermon. A lot of the don'ts in the Bible are actually there to convince you that you're powerless to save yourself. Not that we do those things, but it, it, it just shows you how wicked, how awful the human heart can be. So the invitation of scripture this morning is to find out ways to make Christ greater in your heart. To replace the, the, the passions, the sins, the, uh, the, the passions, the desires of this world, to, to replace them with something more durable, longer lasting. And the invitation of Scripture is to find that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the challenge this morning is put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one that will bring lasting fulfillment. And then I also want to challenge you to identify the idols in your life. Do some work this week. Spend some time with the Lord. Ask the Lord to reveal to you the areas of your lives where you're clinging to worldly things, where you're clinging to idols to bring lasting fulfillment. And and you're probably keenly aware of this because you've been let down by these idols before. The invitation of scripture extends to us and says, recognize the foolishness of serving idols. And then I want to just capture what we talked about last week and use it again because it was so good. Not what I said, but the invitation to, to think through our lives and say, what? What exists in my life that points me toward Jesus Christ? What feeds my relationship with Jesus Christ? It's no, I mean, it's no secret. Do those things. Do those things. And then, so that's what stirs my affections for Christ. And then what robs my affections for Christ? Quit doing those things. Stop it already, right? 
So the invitation of scripture, figure out how to orient your heart so that Christ becomes more beautiful to you than the things of this world. He is the only fountain that will satisfy. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we we thank you for this and every day of life. We thank you for the abundance of our blessings in Christ. And and Lord, I I just want to... I just want to offer our lives up individually and as a congregation. It's, it's amazing how in every community, among every people group, there are different idols. And no two communities are the same. It also never ceases to amaze me how blind we can be to our own idols. And we convince ourselves that we don't have a problem there. I mean, we like those things, but it's not, they're not like God to us. But, but Lord, help us to realize that if we're, if we're reaching to the things of this world to bring true and lasting satisfaction that we can only find in Christ. Help us to be appalled with those decisions. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior of their lives, I pray that today... Um, They would taste and see that you are good. They would put aside the cares of the world. And as Jesus invites us in Matthew 6, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you promise all the other things in life will be be put in their proper place. Help us to seek you first. Help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, help us to do well at loving our neighbors, loving our loved ones. So that we might be instruments that you use to point them to a true and lasting satisfaction in Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to the sermon ministry of the United Advent Christian Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Where we strive to love God with all that is in us. Love our neighbor as ourselves and make disciples of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. I hope you're blessed by this week's message. Please feel free to reach out to us if we can help you or serve you in any way. Thanks again.